You're listening to a presentation of The Rising, a community of faith, a church designed to see people far from God raised to true life. We're always encouraged to know God is changing lives through this ministry. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email to stories at wearetherising.com. Now, prepare your heart and mind to hear a word from God. How many newlyweds do we have here today? You got married in the past 12 months. Raise your hand. It's all right. You can be excited about it. All right. Yeah, past 12 months. Good. Congratulations. That's a good thing. That's good. That's good. How about any engaged couples? Where's the engaged couples? Make some noise. No, make some noise. <laughs> See, I threw you for a loop right there. You didn't know. All right. Yeah, I mean, because you got a ring and, and you're happy about it, so you should make some noise. Uh, how about any couples who want to get engaged? You could just raise your hand, too. This, this could be your way, ladies, of saying, hey, look at my finger, it's naked. <laughs> I need something on it. Or if you're a guy and you want to propose to her, this could be your time to propose. You could just be like, hey, honey, I want to marry you. I mean, it's not very romantic, though, right? When you tell the story later on, people say, hey, how'd y'all get engaged? You say, I rose my hand in church. And that's, that's how she knew that I wanted to get engaged. How about just anybody who wants to get engaged in general? Just anybody. Raise your hand. I'm trying to, listen, if you're single, I'm trying to help you out. You, you go look around and be like, hey, oh, man, I give you a ring pop. Because uh, <laughs> getting engaged is expensive. No, no, I ask that question because, um, you know, often when I counsel newly married couples or couples who are engaged, I let them know that the first year of marriage, I think, is the most difficult year of marriage. My wife and I, we've been married for nine years this year, starting uh, on June 4th. That's our anniversary. We've been married for nine years. That's a good thing. Thank you. I appreciate it. We're going for life. That's our goal is for life. Uh, But we've been married for nine years, and we have a a little girl. She's two and a half years old. Uh, But I would say that even in the past nine years and having a little girl, the most difficult year of our marriage was the first year of our marriage. Not because anything bad happened in that first year, uh, but just because in the first year of marriage, what happens is you have two people who are living for themselves previously, and then they collide with one another, and now they're building a household together. And so they find out all sorts of things about one another. They find out more things about themselves than they ever thought that they would know. And it's this difficult time because two people who are previously living for themselves are now in one household living for another person and learning how to live for another person. And so that's why it's the most difficult year of marriage ever, I think. And, and, and maybe somebody's hearing that today and you're saying, well, I, I mean, I have a solution for that. I, if you don't want it to be that difficult, then just live together before you get married. And that way you can work out all the quirks of living together. Plus during that trial period, you can discover if you even want to be married together because, I mean, if you even want to be married with one another because, I mean, after all, nobody buys a car without test driving it, right? And nobody buys a pair of shoes without first trying them on. But if you would say that, if that's your solution to making sure the first year of marriage isn't that difficult, is testing it out before you get married by living together, if that's what you think, then there's a problem with that. And the problem is this, you're not buying a car. that, That person is not a pair of shoes, right? Because when you buy a car and you test drive it, what are you doing? You're seeing how it performs. You're seeing how it drives. You see if you like it. And if you don't like the performance of that car, if, you don't, if it doesn't really fit your expectations, then you discard the car and go for a different car, right? If you try on the shoes and they don't fit right or they don't feel right, then you discard the shoes and go on to another pair of shoes. And, and is this how you want somebody treating you before you get married? Like, do you want somebody to view you as they're just testing out a car or buying a pair of shoes? No. Do do you want to 
have somebody move in with you, and then they're going to test your performance and, and whether or not you match their standards. And if you don't measure up, then they're just going to discard you and go on to the next person. Do, do you want to have somebody live with you and give your body to them and see if, if it fits and feels right? And if not, well, then I'm just going to discard you and go on to the next person. I mean, is this, is this the model that we want to embrace moving into marriage? That if things don't go like I expect, well, then I'm just going to leave and go on to the next person? Because if, if we embrace this model, then why would our mindset change in marriage? If, if we say, well, we're going to test it out before we get married. We're going to live together. It's a trial period. I mean, after all, nobody buys a car without testing it. Nobody buys a pair of shoes without trying them on first. If we're going to test this out beforehand to see if we can live together, and if things don't go right, well, then we'll just split up and, and go about our, our business and find somebody else. If that's our mindset before marriage, well, then why would it change in marriage? Why would when things get difficult, we would look at it differently? Why wouldn't we just keep that mindset and say, you know, things aren't really working out, and so we split? The, the problem with this solution, if you say that's the way to make the first year of marriage easier, the, the problem with that is when you live together before you get married is you're playing house. You're playing marriage. You're, you're doing all the things that a married couple does without the commitment that a married couple has. And so when things get difficult, when, when things don't really go your way, you just split. But in a marriage, when things get difficult, when things don't go your way, you work on it. You work through it. And that is the difference. Because if you're, if you're single or dating and you're, and you're looking to marry somebody, um, when you get married, you're not just committing to live with that person, but you're committing to live for that person. And there's a difference. And so... In marriage, when things get difficult, uh, you work through those things. And if you have to test that out before you get married, if you have to see if you're compatible before you get married, then you're not ready to get married. Because you should know somebody so well, and you should love that person so much that even if you have quirks in living together, you can get through that. Because in marriage, what you're doing is you're committing to be with one, with one another for richer or for poorer. And so what that means, what you're saying to that person at the altar is that when there's more month at the end of the money, I'm sticking with you. And we're going to figure out how to make this work. And then we're going to come up with a plan and system to get through this so it doesn't happen again. What you're doing when you get married to someone is you're saying, in sickness and in health, I'm going to be with you. And so what you're telling that person is, when you get a diagnosis of cancer, I'll be by your side. When your memory fades because of Alzheimer's, I'll hold your hand through the whole process. What you're doing in marriage is you're not just committing to live with somebody, you're committing to live for somebody. And if you have to test that out beforehand, then you're not ready to get married because you're committing to something so much greater than just do they put the cat back on the toothpaste, right? Like you're committing for something so much greater. And so look at that. I, I just went off on a tangent uh, explaining a statement that you didn't even say, but you might be thinking. And so the answer to, well, we should just live together before we get married. That way we can sort everything out. The, the answer is no, because it doesn't make your marriage easier. Some people think it, make, think it makes it easier. It actually makes it more difficult. Studies have, have shown us that couples who live together before they get married have a 20% greater chance of getting divorced than couples who don't live together before they get married. The reason is because when we live together before, married, before getting married, we're practicing divorce. 
because we have this mindset, if things don't go my way, then I'll just sleep. We've shared a bed, I've shared my body with you, but if things don't go my way, then I'm leaving. And we carry that mindset with us into marriage. But I think God has called us to something greater. And so let me get back to the first year of marriage and why it's so difficult. Y'all got me going on a tangent. Anyway, so going back to the first year and why it's so difficult, here's why it's so difficult. Again, it's because you got two people, two individuals who are living for themselves and now they collide and they're building a household together and they learn all sorts of quirks about one another. And so in that first year of marriage, you, you have conversations like this. It sounds this way. Oh, okay. So, okay. So I did not know that at night, you enjoy the air conditioner to be at a crisp 62 degrees with an industrial strength fan blowing on you the whole night. I had no idea when we were getting married that I was going to be living in the Arctic tundra. But, but now I know, and now we got we to gotta kind of sort through that, right? You have conversations like this because you start to discover things about one another. You, you, you have conversations like this. Um, oh, okay. I had no idea that you were under the assumption that every room in the house should be well lit at all times, even when nobody is in any of those rooms. I had no idea that you had stock in energy companies all around the world. And so this is something we're going to have to work on, turning the lights out when we leave a room. Okay, I, I did not know that. It, it, it's conversations like this that you have. You have conversations like, uh, wow, I did not know that growing up, you believed that the floor was your hamper. And so you feel free to just throw your clothes all over the place. We're going to have to work through that. But now I know, so let's work through that. You, you have conversations like this. Um, you know, I did not know that you are compelled to squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the tube and not the bottom of the tube, right? And, 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 and listen, this is, this is one that has divided many a household right here. Here it is. Oh, uh, honey. Can you please come look at this? Look, see, I did not know before we got married that you believe that the toilet paper should be placed in the under position, <laughs> right? And listen, let's just all stop the madness right now. Can we all just agree that the correct way to put the toilet paper on is in the over position? Am I right? Yes. Thank you. And so, but, but in the first year of marriage, you learn all these things, and you have these conversations, and you learn to pick your battles, and you say, well, well but, but, but the reason why the first year of marriage is so difficult is not because of all the, the quirks that you learn about somebody. Those are just the symptoms of something greater. The reason why the first year of marriage is so difficult is because it's in the first year of marriage, what you're doing is you're making space for that other person in your life. And as you make space for the other person in your life, you find out all these other things. And then you, you say, well, if this is really important to you, then I'll change this. I'll transform this. And you're constantly making space for the other person to, so that they can fill in your life. This is why it's so difficult. And the act of making space for somebody in your life is called the Zimzum. The Zimzum. This is the title for today's message. If you want to write it at the top of your notes, Zimzum. It's spelled T Z I M. T-Z-U-M, Zimzum. It's just a fun word to say, too. Go ahead and say that. Zimzum. Yeah, awesome. So, so the Zimzum is the space that we make for one another. It, it, it's an idea that comes uh, from ancient Jewish 
uh, mystic writers as they were thinking about the creation of the universe. This is found uh, in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 starts off with this idea of God creating, and it says, in the beginning, God. And so the idea is that the only thing that was here in the beginning was God, that God took up all time and space, that all there was was God. There was nothing else, just God. And the ancient Jewish mystic writers were contemplating this, and they said that for God to create the universe, for God to create the world, for God to create humanity, then what he needed to do was detract himself. He needed to pull back himself to make space to create. And so God engages in this act of zimzum, a detracting of himself, a pulling back of himself to make space to create the universe and planets and humanity. And then God fills in this space with his presence. And this, this, this act of detracting, making space, comes from the Hebrew word zimzum. And, you know, when you think about relationships, this same act takes place. When you think about a friendship, it's you detracting, pulling back yourself to make room for your friend. Uh, in a parent-child relationship, it's the same way. You're pulling back yourself to live for your child. Your child's doing that to live for you. But in our context today, uh, this act of zimzum is most prominent in the art of marriage, because it's in marriage that two people collide, and then they're practicing pulling themselves back to make room for the other person. And so when you're single, you're really just kind of living for yourself. You don't really have to detract yourself. You don't have to pull back yourself at all, uh, because you're living for yourself. But when you start dating somebody, well, then now you engage in this practice of zimzum, because you have to pull yourself back some to make room for this other person in your life. And so you're pulling yourself back. And as the relationship advances, as it gets more serious, as you get closer, you pull yourself back more and more and more. And marriage is allowing that other person to fully fill in that space that you've created for them. Also, it's in marriage that you're constantly pulling yourself back. You're, you're constantly detracting to make more and more room for that person, and they're doing the same for you. And so for me and my wife, I no longer live for myself, but I live for her. It's not about what I want, but it's about what she wants. And in the same way, uh, she would say the same thing, that it's not about what she wants, but it's about what I want. And we're living for one another. We're pulling ourselves back to live beyond ourselves, to live for the other person. And this creates a healthy relationship. Now, if you're in a marriage where zimzum is not taking place, pulling yourself back is not happening, then this is a marriage that becomes dysfunctional. This is a marriage that can become abusive. Because if we're not pulling ourselves back to allow the other person to fill that space in, then what's happening is this marriage is all about me. And you exist solely to serve me and what I want. And when that happens, abuse takes place. Uh, taking the other person for granted takes place. And so for a healthy marriage to happen, we have to engage in zimzum. I'm going to pull myself back to allow you to fill in that space, and I'm going to live for you. And watch this. The zimzum, the space that's created, how we manage and maintain that space between the other person translates into our sex life. If we're going to have a healthy sex life, then that means that we need to have a healthy Zimzum. Today we're uh, concluding the series we've been in called Pure Sex, and uh, throughout this series we've discovered that we've been handed all sorts of views and ideas on sex, that, uh, that school has taught us things, that our parents have taught us or maybe didn't teach us things about sex. We've had conversations about sex. Our society, media, culture teaches us all sorts of things about sex, but throughout this series we've said we want to see what does the designer of sex have to say about it? What does the creator of sex 
has to say about sex. So we've been looking at God's views on sex. In the first week of the series, we saw that sex wasn't just physical, but it's more than that. It's deeper than that because sex was created to be the bonding agent, the superglue between two people, to join two people to make them one. The second week of the series, uh, we saw that the way to have the best sex ever is to have sex with the right person. And we said that the right person is the person that you're married to. We said if you're single or dating, the right person is the person that you're going to marry one day when you marry them. And then we also said in order to find the right person, we shouldn't look for the right person, but instead we need to focus on becoming the right person. Because when I become the right person, then I'll attract the right person in my life. And so if you missed either of those sermons, you can listen to them on our podcast, on iTunes, or on our website. But today, as we conclude this series, I want to explore the space that exists between you and the person that you're going to be intimate with, between you and the person that you're married, between you and the person that you'll marry one day. I want to explore this zimzum. Because, uh, again, what we do with the zimzum, how we manage and maintain that space, translates into our sex life. Because sex isn't just an act. Sex isn't just a two-minute event. It's not just a five-minute event. It's not a 10-minute event. It's not a 30-minute, I might be unrealistic there. But, but, but sex is not just an event that takes place at the end of the day in the bedroom. Sex, instead of being an event, is a process. See, for, for most guys, uh, you're like a microwave, right? And so you're ready to go. You just give the word, and you're, and you're ready to go. But here's the thing. Your lady is most likely like a crock pot. And so if you don't flip the switch earlier in the day, then you're not going to have a meal waiting for you later on that night. What, what, what I'm trying to say is that, is that sex is not an event, but sex is a process. And so here's the good news for guys about sex. You get to have sex all day long. Really, you do, because it's a process. But here's what sex is. Sex is washing the dishes. Sex is cleaning the house. Sex is taking care of the kids. Sex is making dinner. Sex is calling just to say I love you. Sex is I'm going to hold you right now, and I know that this isn't going to lead to anything, and it frustrates me, but I'm going to hold you because sex is a process, not an event. There it is. I thought I'd get a little more woos from the ladies on that. I'm trying to help you out. I'm trying to teach your man what to do. Sex is a process, not an event. And that process is the zimzum. That process is what we do and how we manage and maintain the space between us. That process is how's our relationship doing? That process is how's our communication doing? That process is how am I serving you? How am I dying to myself and living for you? This is the process. And if we engage in this process, if we have a healthy zimzum, then we'll have a healthy sex life because sex isn't just physical. It's all these things wrapped into one. It's our emotions. It's how I treat you. It's how you feel about me. It's all these things wrapped into one. And we get to celebrate that at the end of the day in the bedroom or wherever. And we get to celebrate that, this process of us being one. But in order for us to have a healthy sex life, we need to have a healthy zimzum. I want to show you uh, where we see this in the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, would you open up to Ephesians chapter 5? verse 21. And I want to show this to you just so you know that I'm not making this stuff up. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Um, we'll also have the words for you on the screen, but it's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church 
in the city of Ephesus, and he writes this a little under 2,000 years ago, and Paul is talking about this idea of the zimzum, about how a husband and wife treat one another. Now, he uses different language than zimzum, but he's talking about the same concept. It's how we manage and maintain the space between us, and it's found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Here's how he starts off. He says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And real quick, for, for women, when you hear that, like, don't start tripping. Because he says, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Don't be like, what? Huh? What, what's that about? Because notice that he starts off by saying, submit to one another. And so he starts off blanketing this whole thing in a mutual submission. Later on, too, when we get to what he, tell, what he talks about for husbands and guys, um, Guys have it a, a little worse off when it comes to submitting, and I, I'll show you that in a minute. But he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. And so real quick, women... You shouldn't have a problem submitting to your husband because he's loving you, because he's pulling himself back, making room for you, and taking you into consideration. He says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so for guys, here's what he tells us to do. He tells us to love our wives like Jesus loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? How did he love us? Well, he gave his life for us. He laid down his life. He died, <laughs> right? And so he tells us that we need to die to ourselves to serve our wives. Really what he's talking about is a mutual submission where both parties are dying to themselves and serving one another, where both parties are pulling themselves back to make more and more space for the other person. And so he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. We'll keep going. Verse 29, after all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And so what Paul is describing here is this mutual submission between both husband and wife where I'm living for you, you're living for me, I'm pulling myself back, you're pulling yourself back, and we're fully filling in that space. And how we manage and maintain that space will ultimately translate into the health of our sex life. And so each and every one of us has a zimzum between us and the person that we're married to or if you're single or dating, the person that you're going to marry one day. And so I just want to take a moment to talk about how we manage that space in every relationship status that's represented here. And so for instance, uh, if you're single today, there's a space between you 
and the person that you're going to marry one day. There's a zimzum that's there. Now, you may not even know that person. You may have never even met that person, but that person is out there somewhere. And between you and that person, there's a space that exists. And so the question then is, what do you do to manage and maintain that space? What do you do to fill the space between you and the person that you're going to marry one day? Because whatever you fill that space with, however you interact with that space, however you manage that space, that's going to impact your future relationship with that person, even if you've never met them yet. And so what do you fill that space with? Because if you fill that space with pornography, then that's going to impact your future relationship with them. And you may think, well, it doesn't really bother me. It doesn't really uh, have an effect on me. It doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, I'm doing it just for myself, but it does. It's impacting the person that you're going to marry one day, and you don't even know them yet. Because you're going to take views of sex. You're going to take images of other women or men into your relationship with that person. And what you're saying to them right now, even though you've never met them, is you're not enough for me. I need other people in my life to satisfy me sexually. What you're saying to that person, even though you've never met them yet, is you're saying that I'm comparing you to everybody else. And if you're a woman who's going to marry a man like that, that's a lot to try and live up to. You can't. You can't. You can't live up to something that's not real. And this isn't just for single people, but this is also if you're dating right now and you're engaging in pornography, you're filling the space between you and the person you're going to marry with this. And that's going to affect your relationship. If you're married, there's a space between you and the person that you're married to. And if pornography takes some of that space, then that's going to affect your relationship. And so what do you fill that space with? If you're single, what do you fill it with? Do you fill it with hooking up with people? Do you fill it with trying to find a savior in somebody as opposed to allowing Jesus to be your savior? What do you fill that space with? Because whatever you fill that space with is going to impact your future relationship. Here's what I suggest you fill that space with. If you're single, I suggest that you fill the space between you and the person you're going to marry one day, that you fill it with becoming the person that you want to be with, that you focus on yourself. That, that you say, I'm going to work on being the person God has called me to be so that when that person comes along, that they'll be attracted to me. I'm going to work on uh, giving my time to God. You know, if you're single, you have a gift that God has given you, and it's your singleness. If you're, if you're single today, you have more time than anybody else in this room. I know you don't think that because you work and you go to school and all that stuff, but if you're single, you got more time than anybody else. You got more time than somebody who's married. You got more time than, more time than somebody who's married with kids. I know when, when my wife and I just, we had our daughter, we thought to ourselves, like when we were married, we were like, man, we're so busy. We got all sorts of stuff going on. And then we had our daughter and we were like, what did we do with all of our time before? Because when you have kids, you have even less time. And then I'm told by parents who have multiple kids, that they look back when they had one kid and they're like, what did I do with all my time when I just had one kid? I think that we're maxed out already, but when we have another kid, we'll look, probably look back and say, what did I do with all my time? And so if you're single, you have more time than anybody else. And God has given you that time so that you can use it to serve him. And so if you're single, I want to issue a challenge. If you're not serving right now within this church, God has given you a gift in your singleness and in your time to use that to make a difference in the lives of other people. 
So if you're single, I want to encourage you to sign up to serve today. I know you don't think you have a lot of time, but you got a ton of time. What do you fill the space with between you and the person that you're going to marry one day? If you're dating, there's a space between you and the person that you're going to marry one day, and uh, you might not marry the person you're dating. I know you probably don't want to hear that, and I know you got plans, but, but plans will sometimes change. And so what do you fill the space with between you and the person that you're going to marry one day? Do you, do you fill it with having sex with the person that you're dating right now? And maybe you say, no, 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 no. See, we are going to get married one day, I, I promise. But most people who date have that intention, and then they break up. I know you got plans, and if you're going to get married one day, then I want to encourage you, just wait till you get married. Wait, wait the next few months or wait the next couple years or however long it is until you get married because when you get married, here's a secret, you get to have sex for the rest of your life. Maybe not every time you want it, but, but you get to have sex for the rest of your life. You get to be 65. Never mind, let's not even. But, but, but you get to have sex for the rest of your life when you get married. What's the next couple years in the span of the rest of your life? So pursue purity in that. And maybe you would say, well, we're not having sex. We're saving that for marriage. But God doesn't call us to reserve just sex for marriage. He calls us to pursue purity. And sometimes we think, well, we'll do everything but sex. We'll see how close we can get to the line without crossing it. But God doesn't call us to get close to the line without crossing it. He calls us to pursue purity. And so what do you fill that space with? Do you fill that space with becoming the person that you want to be with? Because if you become the person you want to be with, then you'll attract the person that you want to be with. Do you fill that space with serving with the person that you're married with, being a team together and showing people what a godly relationship looks like? What do you fill that space with? You know, I think so often when I talk to uh, couples who are dating and also single people, uh, I talk with them so much about boundaries in dating and pursuing purity. And, and the reason why I talk about boundaries so much with couples who are dating is because for so long in my dating life, I got it wrong. Um, years ago, I was a Christian, and I was in Bible college, and I was studying to be a student ministry pastor. And during that time, uh, I was dating my wife. We were boyfriend-girlfriend at the time, and we had an impure relationship. We never had sex. We might as well have because we crossed all sorts of lines leading up to it, but we said we wanted to save sex for marriage. And so her and I, we had an impure relationship. You talk about somebody who's flawed and who's in need of the grace of God. Here, here I was a Christian in Bible college studying to be a student ministry pastor. Like, does it get any worse than that? And I have an impure relationship with my girlfriend. And we knew it. That's the thing. We knew it, and we felt bad about it. And, and every time we'd say, we need to stop doing this. We can't do this. We need to, we need to draw lines. We need to set boundaries. And, but nothing ever changed until the year before we got married. The year before we got married, we said, okay, we keep talking about it. We keep saying we're going to try harder next time. We're not going to do this. We're going to do whatever. But it never happened. And so the year before we got married, we set up two boundaries in our life that transformed our relationship. And we set up these two boundaries because we wanted to honor God in our relationship. And also we wanted to honor one another for our future marriage. Another reason why we did this is because we wanted to be able to say to our kids one day, hey, your mom and dad didn't always get it right. But then we decided we need to follow God. Because what it came down to was this. We said about our relationship, if we can't control ourselves, 
because I told her, I said, look, you're too hot. I can't control myself around you, right? We said, if we can't control ourselves, then we just need to break up because we need to pursue God over pursuing one another. And the relationship that matters most in our life is our relationship with God, not our relationship with one another. And if we can't have a pure relationship, then we need to end our relationship. And so we said, since that's the ultimatum, we need to put some serious boundaries in our life. We came up with two boundaries, and we did this for the entire year before we got married. I want to share them with you, because I believe that if you are dating and you put these boundaries in your life, it'll transform your dating relationship, it'll transform your future marriage, and it'll just make your life better. It's the best decision we've ever made. Here's the two boundaries we put in place. The first one is this. We said we are never going to be alone together, because we found that when we were alone together, that's when stuff happened. And so we said, we're never going to be alone together. So for an entire year in our relationship, we went on dates to Barnes & Noble, to Starbucks, to the movies. We were never alone for an entire year of our relationship. We weren't even alone uh, at one another's houses because we could find a way to be alone there. So we never spent time together when we were alone with one another. Now, if you're going to cross lines in public, that's a different problem. I don't know how to fix that for you. But we said we're never going to be alone because we're not going to do that stuff in front of other people. So for an entire year, we weren't alone. Here's the second boundary that we put in place. And it's actually found in the scriptures. It's um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2. Now, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, and he tells him how to conduct himself with various people. And so here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2. He says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So he says, Treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, and younger women as sisters. But at the end of that, he adds a line. He says, With absolute purity. Paul is talking to a young man. And he tells this young man, treat young women as sisters with absolute purity. So we put this boundary in place. We said, listen, I, I said to my wife, um, I said, you're not my wife yet, so I'm going to see you as my sister. You're my sister in Christ. And so if I wouldn't do that to my sister, I'm not going to do that with you. Now, this doesn't work in West Virginia, but it worked in our, in our <laughs> circumstance. So I said, I said, listen, you're my sister. If I wouldn't do it to my sister, I'm not going to do it to you. And she said the same for me. We're not married, you're not my husband, so I'm going to see you as my brother, and if I wouldn't do it to my brother, then I'm not going to do it to you. So for an entire year before we got married, we didn't kiss, not once. We didn't hug longer than two or three seconds. I didn't hold her while we watched a movie, and I didn't touch her on her hip or her thigh or anywhere else on her body in a sexual way. We didn't even hold hands for an entire year of our marriage, because if I had a sister, I wouldn't hold her hand. And so this is the boundary that we put in place. If I wouldn't do it to a brother or sister, then I'm not going to do it to you. And maybe you're saying, well, I could never do that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. If you respect the person you're going to marry enough that you want to pursue absolute purity, you can do it. Was, it. was it hard? Yeah. Was it worth it? Yeah. And so you can put these boundaries in place. And I, I don't know what it is for you, but God is so serious about our pursuit of purity that Paul instructs Timothy Treat young women as sisters with absolute purity. Absolute purity. I wonder if you're dating, would people be able to look at your relationship and say, man, they are an example of absolute purity. I want to be like them. <clears throat> Let me talk to married couples real quick. Um, 
with married couples, there's a zimzum between the two of you. There's a space between you. And how you manage that space impacts your sex life. And so I wonder for you, how are you treating one another? Are you making room for the other person's interests in your life? Or do you fill that space with biting comments, with sarcasm, with put-downs? How, how are you treating the person that you're married? Do you honor them? Do you open her door for her? Do you, do you pull out her chair for her? I, I, I love, I, I was talking with um, a coach that I have in church planting, and he told his wife this. He said, you're never going to have to open your door when I'm around. He said, because I want to honor you so much that I'm going to open your door for you. This is just one way that we honor and respect one another, one way that we serve one another. How do you treat the person that you're married to? I want to give you just one way to think about this. You know, often uh, in our marriage, we, we think of um, all these tasks that we have to do, that there's like everyday life, and then there's these magical moments. And if I could just get through all the chores, if I could just get through taking care of the kids, if I could just get through the dishes, all that stuff, then I'll be able to enjoy the magical moments. Um, and oftentimes what we do is we create this idea of escape within our relationship. If I could just get through all this, then I can enjoy these precious few hours with the person I love. Um, and, and oftentimes what happens is uh, we look forward to date night. If you're married, uh, I highly recommend that you do a date night, that you hang out once a week, uh, just the two of you. But, but often what happens is when we approach life this way, that there are all these tasks and things we just have to get, get done, then we can escape to these mythical, magical three hours on Friday night where we get to spend time with one another, it, it often leads to a letdown, right? Because we look forward to this date night, but when Friday comes around, we're exhausted. And so we're in the car, we're driving to the restaurant, and we start arguing with one another. And then we get to the, to the restaurant, and all we do is talk about the food and if it was good or not good, and then we remain silent the rest of the time. Sometimes we check our phone, and then after the dinner, we're like, okay, so what do we want to do now? And this is date night. And it doesn't really satisfy and fulfill like we want it to because we have this escape mentality. If I could just get through the day, then I can experience these magical moments. But I want to encourage you to foster the zimzum between you and the person that you're married to, to, to cherish the everyday moments. What if, what if, instead of I just have to do these things, we said we get to do these things together? What if we get to wash the dishes together? What if we get to make dinner together? We get to go to the grocery store together. Like, we view life as this journey, and we find the divine in the everyday moments, right? Like, yeah, you're, you're making dinner, but I'm making dinner with this person. And there's good music on, and we're conversing, and we're talking about our day. And, and, and it's, a, it's an adventure that we're on together. It's not just, honey, you're, you're making dinner in there, and I'm watching TV. No, we get to do this together like engaging in the zimzum and fostering this space between us and serving one another is you have to go to the grocery store and they're watching TV. Well, they stop watching TV and you go to the grocery store together and you do it together. It's, it, it's finding the divine as you walk the dog together and you converse as a family. What, what if in the everyday moments of life, we didn't view them as I just have to get this done or these chores or tasks or whatever, but we get to do them and we get to do them with a person we've committed our lives to. What would change in your marriage if you began to view things that way? Not as tasks that have to get done, but ways that we can join together to serve one another and to love one another. And so as you 
Think about the zimzum and the various relationships in your life. How are you managing it? How are you maintaining it? If you're single, I want to encourage you to fill that space with God and allow him to transform you, to help you become the right person so that you'll attract the right person. If you're dating, I want to encourage you to live for the person that you're going to marry one day. And that means setting up boundaries in your dating relationship now so that even if you do marry that person, that you can honor them by uh, honoring yourself and them by, by waiting until you get married to explore the playground of sex. And then if you're married, I want to encourage you to enter into the slog of life together. This is an adventure that we get to go on and we can find the divine in everyday moments. What are you doing with the Zimzum? How are you managing and maintaining the space between you? Because ultimately, how we manage that space will translate into our sex life. Hey, would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you pulled back to create, and then you filled your creation with your presence. God, help us pull ourselves back so that we can live for the person that we're married to, so that we can live for the person that we'll one day marry. God, let us pursue you in the space, and let us seek you for guidance as to how we should live. Right now, I believe that God has spoken to many of you today, and I just want to ask you, what is God saying to you about this? With your eyes closed as you contemplate this, what is God saying to you? What is he speaking to you? And then what are you going to do about it? As a result of what you've experienced today, what are you going to do? What needs to change? What needs to be different? Perhaps for some of you, it's just living life with a grateful attitude. For others, it's living with discipline. And for still others, it's discovering what humility looks like. I wonder, what is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it today? God, give us the strength and the courage to do that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray you are inspired and encouraged by today's message. For more information on The Rising, visit wearetherising.com.